0: Hi, guys, it's Andy McDonald, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, I have the Head Strength and Conditioning Coordinator at the Houston Astros, Dan Howes. Dan is a British SC coach that has transitioned from the English Institute of Sport to England Rugby Sevens to now Major League Baseball with the Houston Astros. With these transitions in mind, in this episode with Dan, we discuss his move to baseball and how he structured the thought processes for developing and managing a strength conditioning program and department. Hope you've been enjoying recent episodes of the Informed Performance Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to ensure that you catch all the new episodes that we're releasing. But without further ado, here is the conversation between myself and Dan Howes. Hi Dan, thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate your time, mate.
1: Thank you. I appreciate you inviting me on and... and, uh over some performance oriented aspects.
0: Just to begin with, um, for any of the listeners that may not have come across you before, could you just kind of outline um, kind of who you are, what you do, and, and what your background is?
1: Yeah, so I'm currently over in the States. Um, my official title is Head Strength and Conditioning Coordinator um, with the Houston Astros, so the Major League Baseball team over here, and that basically um, leads me to the to run the department over here in terms of strength and conditioning practice, from from the MLB level all the way through to our, our Dominican Academy, uh, we have different people in different roles across the organisation, and it's my job to basically lead that team and and with a performance orientated mindset and create as bigger impact as possible for performance improvement.
0: And you were at England rugby before that. How did that kind of move take place? Because you know, I'm sure those circles don't mix too much.
1: Yeah, they're they're pretty polar opposite. Um, I'm sure we'll get into examples later about how how polar opposite they are. But um, I'd spent five seasons with England, um, the sevens team specifically. Uh, I'd felt like I'd, I'd achieved what I wanted to really there with with having exposure to different situations like two Commonwealth Games and and I'd also set out to. It was a, a personal goal to go to the Olympics with with the team. That's one of my main motivations for taking that role in the first place. Um, and I spent time developing a program, you know, a legacy, on essentially a relatively shoestring type budget from an SNC perspective, um, and a small team. And, and I'd learned a huge amount from that environment, and I just started to feel that I'd personally taken my work towards you know a, you know, a limiting end as, as such, and I was starting to think about other you know, steps in my career. Um, I knew ultimately I wanted to be in a role that managed people and other coaches that would put me on the path towards more of a performance management role in the future. Um, As well as retaining my coaching impact, I was still very interested in coaching. And so it was going to be quite interesting to find something that met those needs. And then randomly I had a, a call from a previous line manager of mine and asked if I was interested in listening um, to hear a little bit more about this role at the time with the Astros. And um, then a, when I said yes, a fellow colleague who I work with now reached out, um, you know, basically to see if I was interested. And, you know, he was reaching out to uh, you know, various practitioners across the world in terms of recommendations that they trusted and they threw, threw my name his way, basically. And, um, you know, I think that demonstrates the impact of building good relationships with peoples and peers, um as those reputations seem to have a big impact on your career i think um anyway the the astros were looking for someone to fill what what is my current role by identifying a problem really which is what attracted me to them as an organization you know they saw a need to upskill the department in certain areas of sports performance that they felt they were lacking behind other sports as opposed to other teams in their sport um and so they wanted to ensure that their pool of or potential pool of candidates had experiences not only in baseball but other sports potentially that could be more accustomed to say load management or sports science integration and so that yeah that brought me to, to where I am now and the mere fact that yeah they were looking at people to fill the role um and relating it back to improving not only their, the, the, the performance of a department but also the impact on the players in the organization was a big attractor to me um, and that leads me to to where I am now
0: in um in the very nice west palm beach if i'm right yes
1: yeah i'm currently sat um in my my house in the sunshine but um yeah i I, i'm pretty fortunate i'm very very happy to to be where i'm at it was a big big decision it was a a risky decision in some ways but you know pleased to have, have made the move and taken myself out of my comfort zone in that sense yeah
0: and what you know what what are the big things that you think you've learned or how do you think you've kind of developed as a practitioner um through you know the process of changing sports
1: yeah i yeah i think that looking back you know my my early coaching days i did some work at the university of brighton as a as a, a very early stage postgraduate position and and then i was fortunate enough to get into the is quite quite quickly and spent five or six years there and that really helped me understand the value of thinking about athletic performance in an, in a needs analysis perspective and making informed decisions from that point onwards. And I was, I was a young coach, but I had to work in that environment with numerous sports. I was working with squash, women's soccer, women's rugby. I was working with badminton, um, sprint cycling. I was working with disability cycling, uh, disability swimming, sorry, disability rowing, wheelchair rugby. And so I was actually Changing sports hour by the hour in that environment, and I think that put me in a good stead to to create impact. And then, you know, essentially through the process of changing sports daily in that role, and then moving on to, to rugby, which was which my sport growing up as a you know as a as a young person playing rugby um, was beneficial as opposed to just going from playing rugby to coaching in rugby. I felt it put me in a stronger position. So, yeah. Typically, my counterparts, other teams at the time, had only ever worked in rugby, so I felt that I was under-experienced in terms of years in the sport, but I felt much more prepared in terms of eventualities uh, and preparedness to to adapt, basically. And that was my first experience of managing a department. And um, I learned then about the importance of principles of practice that, that sort of flow into philosophies or flow from philosophies. I learned about, you know... Uh, trust of others and, and delegations of roles and responsibilities for, for wider impact, which I think people sometimes don't don't do as well. Um, and I learned that we should probably always be opportunistic to create impact and and willing to change in the moment if we need to and we if we see it can have have an, have an impact on the spot. Uh, and by that I mean whether it's your athlete learning through experience or whether it's a bunch of coaches underneath you that you're mentoring. That 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 word mentoring is yeah is important. Um, and I mentioned people you know by reflecting with them in the moment whether it's an athlete or a coach about successes or failures and why X Y and z has happened is important for for everything we're doing whether it's training system development or process development um, and that's that's one of the biggest things I've learned through those two journeys so far is is how to be opportunistic. Um, as, as possible I think one of the biggest things in, in Premiership rugby that I've taken into baseball was the concept of always being able to relate your principles and philosophies back to back to performance so it really resonates with players because I think looking back those players probably saw me as a young and inexperienced sort of head of, head of and probably tested me on that but I generally felt pretty prepared to articulate why I felt we could you know add value by doing certain types of sprints at certain times of the week as it would impact their performance in you know, this way and that way and and rugby was what they had an emotional attachment to performance was what what they had an emotional attachment to and so I learned quickly that you know you know if you have opinions they tend to lead to debates and that probably taking more of a mentorship role that may take you the long way round to getting somebody on board with you but it's actually more understanding from their perspective in the long run um, and then obviously you know, I changed to, to Sevens um, and that was a great, great time for me. I learned a huge amount there about the value of the relationship with the head coach. You know, Simon A. who's who was my head coach there, was Sevens World Player of the Year, had been there as a player um, and has now been there as a coach. He's now currently working with Eddie Jones in the senior setup in the Six Nations that's just passed. Um, and he's one of the most performance-minded people I've ever met and he kept me on my toes, which was, was excellent. And there's probably few sport coaches out there in my opinion who had the desire to understand all the details and impact around all departments, uh, and, and the impact they can have on sports performance. And you know, with a relatively low budget for sports science and training equipment, we had a very high performing environment day to day and that was largely driven by by his standards. Um, yeah, in the big the big area of development for me in this time and you know, going back to your original question about what I've learned and what I've developed, you know, during that time for me was understanding, say, load management of players and that every athlete, although turning up for the same session that particular day, will have had a very different path at that point. I think it was John Carley that talked a lot about biological periodization and that everybody has a different, you know, response to the stimulus and... Um, that has been placed on them. And so they're all on different stages of development day to day. And so I managed to hone in on the information that was generated from things like GPS and, and HRV and wellness guest questionnaires, because we didn't have a fancy AMS system to automate that work. So I could really get in and understand that data. And so that was a big area of development for me. And so I decided to develop this concept, push pull with players, meaning that, you know, some needed to be pushed with a stimulus if they were a little bit behind um, or, or, you know, in a state of readiness or freshness, and others need to be pulled back or protected from overload. And, and by understanding the data, I could have clear reasons for acting this in this way. I learned how to articulate that to players. Um, you know, ensure that we had that buy-in, and they understood the bigger picture because they trusted your judgment as it as it was consistent. A lot of, you know, observations over time have been that people are inconsistent with their message and that's hard to believe as a player and therefore trust doesn't get bought from that point onwards. Um, and I feel that these days tech can limit the coaches of tomorrow um, because it limits their understanding of the data because it's automated yeah. and yeah. Yeah, using a work example, probably here now in baseball, we had a vision to be, or we have a vision um, to be one of the top teams that uses data to inform practice. And I think that's what well publicized, but you can never take away the human element of it. And, And the essence of delivery of messages and communication is this human element. The data helps raise our awareness to inform those decisions. And so we were using GPS and using it quite extensively, but we were automating the process as well. And our sport science does a a world-class, truly world-class job of making a huge amount of that data relevant and, well, available in the first instance. and, And we're making it much, much more relevant these days. But at this particular time, we had a technical glitch with the automation from GPS um, sort of export to cloud-based interpretation. And so that, that information was getting lost and it forced us actually to, to get our coaches to go a little bit old school and download the data themselves and um, yeah, assess it through Excel. And it was only then that those those guys really, truly understood the information and, and could get into understanding the context of that information. As, as to that, they were a little bit lost. So, you know, I, that, that takes me back to those those Rugby Sevens days when I didn't have the glorified AMS and I was forced to see the data information day in, day out and really become fine tuned to it. Um, and so, yeah, and then I guess most recently the things I've learned since moving into baseball, I've learned that, you know, consistency is, consistency in your messages is vital and that, you know, that being on point and with your, your messages to play day in, day out articulating the why is huge for buying. Um, and that 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 message needs to be paramount across your team as well. Yeah, you know, these players need to be supported by the same messages and the same visions and values and and same reasons we do at X, Y, and Z in our in our in our program. And then also that evaluating your practices consistently, whether that's you know we do a lot of in-house research, but that yeah you know, that's going to help you update your systems and processes. You know, month to month or year to year to maximise their effectiveness, and that's one thing we've done here that wasn't able to do as efficiently in, in say, England Sevens because we didn't have the resources.
0: Mm. And how how much time are you kind of around the players themselves, coaching? Are you are you kind of still face to face with the athletes themselves?
1: Yeah, I think. Well, I know that if we look at the, the calendar year, so yeah, we've just come out of sort of a spring training period. I was on the on the gym floor day to day, coaching day in day out, but also. The beginning and say throughout yeah. and end of day, coaching staff at the same time. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, very much in coaching apparel and and being perceived to be a coach because to be perceived as somebody more front office over here, I think is potentially you're negative for a coaching role because they see you more as a decision maker and maybe not understanding as much as you could do if you've been on the ground and having skin in the game as they say so I think that's important from from my perspective because perception is everything it kind of you know drives a lot of a lot of outcomes so I want to be perceived as a coach I want to be perceived as somebody that um, has a player's interests at heart Um, and so yeah I'll every day there'll be an element of coaching of players Um, just depends on what level so whether that's a rookie level locally in West Palm during the season or whether it's travelling to an affiliate to work with the coaches but then he takes one group and I take another, that's yeah, very much down to the day in question. So they'll be coaching every single day of some sort. Yeah.
0: And how, how smooth has it been in terms of getting um, sort of rapport and buy-in with uh, you know a new sport and in a country that definitely knows that in the UK we don't play baseball?
1: Yeah, I think I did. One of the big things I did when I came on board was, well, prior to coming on board, once I knew I was coming over, I started to reach out to other people that I know had made jumps to other sports maybe ones that they weren't as accustomed to um, and you know, one of the big messages I got from sort of fellow peers was that you know be show your vulnerability and don't go in even if you think you know X Y and Z about what you're talking about just be open and, and candid about learning from the people that are already there Um, and that, that was invaluable to help earn trust from the players and the coaches. So, you know, I asked a lot of questions. I took on board a lot of things. I, I challenged the potentially their sort of conventional wisdom as it's called and try to put other ideas in their mind and you had conversations that were, Oh, why, why would you not do it in this way? Or as opposed to, I don't agree agree with that, you know, so just be careful about my choice words and phrases and, um, yeah, obviously I was very aware of that, but it generally came out, I feel like, in a successful manner so far anyway. Yeah.
0: And based on your kind of, um, your experiences, how how is the kind of provision of S&C different between um, an American team and, say, an English team or or the style in which it's coached and, um, and organised?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the other things, going back to your other question here, is it's not necessarily an American team. We've got lots of different, um, cultures and nationalities as well. There's a hugely uh, dominant sort of Latin American population as well, which means there's a lot of Spanish-speaking um, individuals in the clubhouse and in the organisation. So you do have to be aware of that as well, and and that's one thing that was different was sort of from my experiences in rugby. The diversity, national, you know, international diversity is not as vast as as here potentially, but. Um, I'd say the biggest standout is probably the style of s and provision. I think it probably on first glance probably comes from the college system a little bit. It has a huge impact over here in the States. Obviously it's a big, big revenue stream. Um, there's a lot of spectators. It's, it's a big socially, you see it as well, you know, locally in, in your your towns that buy into college football, for example. Um, whereas in the UK, there's sort of diversity between a university and academy team and, and some pro levels is not that different, um, and, and is quite similar. In the states, I think with a huge, huge number of athletes and programs in the college system, there's a potential to have to be a little bit more generic in places to reach the mass masses. And you do see because it's much more of a scheduled environment, you know, with academia involved, it has to be somewhat militant in nature at times. And you look at scholarships and. Why players are there that the motive is a little bit different they haven't necessarily made it yet and this is probably fantastic for consistency and session quality but um, is it as performance orientated as it could be for some programs yes for others maybe it's not based on how many coaches they have you know, who knows but whatever the thoughts I'd say that you know any coach moving from a college setting to a professional setting over here would probably need to be growth minded and quite adaptable because pro sports over here have got people who are, you know, some, some guys, which you don't get in the UK teams, have signed for X amount of money before they've even put on a shirt. And that sends some players with their character and attitude one way. And then you've got some guys who are, who are signed for very little and, and they have to prove their worth. Um, and so priorities change. There's lots of different levels of priorities with these players from that, stand, that standpoint. And you can see, especially in baseball, for example, there's it's a team, but those guys are, are basically individuals that need to come together for games. But for the rest of the time, they're focusing on themselves and bettering themselves because that's the biggest impact they can have. And they have to earn. They have to earn. You know, over here, the pro sports mainly the players only get paid for that playing time. Whereas in the UK, they're generally contracted for a season, which extends out over off seasons and pre seasons so that changes the dynamic because S&C provision here, excuse me, in the off season, one of the biggest things we've seen here is that for four months of the year they're they're off training with external trainers a lot of the time. You know, we have remote ways to program, whether it's through team builder and keeping these players accountable to conversations and, and checkups, but some choose and rightly so to take some time out from us and go train with an external trainer. And so I see a lot of my off season work being about you know relationship building with other external partners as such to benefit our players in the long run because yeah. I don't think that's necessarily done as well as it could be over here I think you know we get good feedback from the places I visit and talk to about our intent to share information for, for the players benefit and we've had some really good individual case study outcomes from that which again is probably is a problem we do not have it back in the UK Uh, Those those are definitely things that stand out as as different um, between the two environments. Um, I think that, um, you know, we have to be innovative about training here, innovative about, you know, our types of learning and education based on language barriers sometimes. Um, And then going down to the, the coaches themselves, some great, Great coaches. One of the things that stood out to me when I got here was the just the job titles. You know, back home we're all strength conditioning coaches, over here self termed generally as strength coaches. And so we've spent a lot of time reshaping that and understanding that. You know, we spent a lot of time focusing on the details around our sprint, and plyometric, and conditioning development for our coaches and our players, and dedicated a lot of time to that because it seems to be an area that may not be as well first as as in the UK because you know soccer and rugby is is highly dependable on on the fitness side of things um so yeah those those are some standouts for me
0: no thank you um this next one can apply to the Astros or not because I know you may have to be a little bit sensitive so you can talk as openly as you're comfortable um but you, you know you've recently gone through the process of um of changing sports heading up a program so I'm really interested to hear how do you kind of structure the thought processes themselves in how you understand and then develop a strength conditioning program and department?
1: Yeah, I think this was the first, first time I had to think about this because in, 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 in to England Sevens, you know, we had 23 to 25 players. We had a head coach, an assistant coach, head physio, assistant physio, and, and, and analyst and myself. So I was a team of one. Leading a team of one, <laughs> and so, in terms of like, I could ha- change a decision or have an th- idea and thought, and I could run with it. And I forgot, I didn't forget, but I I was coming into this role. I had to take a moment and think, right, how do I, how do I now lead a team of twelve to thirteen other staff? We have that's our department size, across the organisation, and how do I do that when we've got some down in the Dominican, some up in you know, northeast of, of the US summit, you know, in Texas and all over the place. So how do I achieve that? And and just by, you know, an infor- unfortunate situation where I was actually held back in the UK for an extra month based on visa confusion or complications. And so I, I used that time and took stock and, and used it to my advantage in the end. Actually, I, I basically Skyped all our S and C coaches prior to me coming over here and went through kind of like a, you know, first date scenario where we we just talked shop with each other, um, and ultimately I was going through some pretty standard questions and wanted to understand these guys as and girls as people really first and foremost, and find out their motivations. And so, you know, asking certain questions like, "What is your why? What is your personal training philosophy?" You know, what you know, you know, could you express an Astros training philosophy? And that that was at the time a standout question because everyone was on slightly different pages. You know, guys that had been there for a few years understood a bit better. Guys that were relatively new couldn't articulate it. And for me, that was something I, I was motivated to change quite quickly. And so, but that, that gave me a quick needs analysis of the fact that we needed a shared purpose, shared purpose and vision. And so once, you know, I understood from these talks about what, what mattered to these coaches the most and where they saw opportunity for change and where they needed leadership, they were quite candid and honest and it was really useful and I I said don't hold back and actually those those truthful comments allowed me to shape the way I wanted to approach this and so when we came into to to work uh, obviously I spent a few months observing I asked a lot of questions I took on a lot of opinions from people rightly so guys with lots of experience Um, and and just took a lot of notes and started to shape my, my thoughts and I knew because we needed a shared purpose and vision that I need I could start something relatively from scratch, but I didn't want to reinvent the wheel. So I took a lot of, a lot of the basic principles of what had been done previously and added, added some very specific outlines to things. And so we, we came up with our our framework of SNC, which was, to, to have some pillars of performance and whether you call them strength, power, speed, or whatever you do call them, but we had some underarching pillars and we would relate some elements of sport science to each pillar from an objectivity point of view. But for each one, we would have clear principles so that these coaches then could have autonomy in how they wanted to deliver those principles. So, um, you know, from a, from a lifting point of view, very simply, for example, we wanted to make sure that we, we had intensity in the season and that we were using VBT as a means to quantify that intensity. How you did that, whether it was from traditional five by five model or whether it was from pause rest sets, that's entirely up to the, the coach who's on the ground working with the athletes who and, and know those athletes better than I. And I think that was a little bit of what was lacking before because they'd had programs sent out to them. And, and a lot of our coaches, young coaches especially, hadn't. one of the needs I saw was that they hadn't got the ability to necessarily program that well because they hadn't been given that opportunity. And so that led me to, to develop that, that starting point for us. So come up with principles of practice that staff members could be held accountable to, uh, but have autonomy in the way they delivered them. So as I visited each affiliate, if for our speed pillar, certain principles weren't being adhered to, I actually could mentor the coach as to why maybe a drill selection or exercise choice wasn't as suitable as it could be based on and principles that we'd agreed previously. Yeah. Um, so that, that's where I sort of started. Um, obviously, I had to deconstruct the sport myself and understand where there was areas of impact. And it's probably a lot simpler than the England Seven setup, which you know you needed to not only be fast, you needed to be the fittest. Strength was was obviously complementary to towards injury resilience. You know, you had to be a well well rounded athlete. Whereas in in baseball, it's much more of a what I would call a pure sport. So the needs are a lot more centered around strength, power, and speed. But then taking a step back, you need to understand what are the what are the demands of the sport when you add the single demands again and again and again, rep after rep and day after day, and and then you realize that there's energetic demands and, and benefits from a conditioning perspective, which potentially hadn't been looked at as in a detailed manner previously. So we would add add that in and um, yeah that that's that was my starting point really around in terms of my thought process about developing a strategy anyway. Um, I definitely consulted a lot of guys so that everybody could see a shared contribution to the overall philosophy. You know that I wanted to be able to make sure that m- most people in the room could see where they had agreed to something or Saw value in something because that meant they felt part of the process as opposed to being dictatorial in nature. I thought I made the decision that leading a team of twelve or thirteen that I wasn't going to see all that often was going to be quite important.
0: And I think you know you've you've touched upon kind of the the organisational needs, I guess, from your department and the different coaches that are in the different branches of the Astros organisation geographically. Um how did you kind of break down the the needs of the Astros as a whole um as you saw it? Because I'm guessing they kind of tell you what they want, but how did you kind of then look at look at what they need from your perspective?
1: Yeah, I think I mean they were very open to 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 hearing my side of things, so let me come in come in and have a look look through and, and, and offer my thoughts. But I mean from a performance impact point of view, um obviously needs our player availability, like every sport, you know, you need your best players. Um, So we needed to have a component of the program that was centered on either injury resilience, which we do, or it was centered on uh, injury or rehabilitation should we be in a position where players availability has been compromised and, and we have to return them as quickly as possible. And so that was where we would, you know, I felt I could add value with, with, um, some of the more modern, I guess, areas around rehab and and loading and what we know about loading these days in a sport that traditionally hasn't done a huge amount of training or or focused on adaptations in the in the specific sense. It's been a very it's a very traditional sport um, and is probably quite behind. So so from the organizational days, they were quite open to to hearing me out. And but like any sport, player availability is key. So. Maximizing that availability is, is paramount, and I guess that means that anything you're doing needs to be productive, performance-orientated, but, but not be, also be negligent in any way, because you've got laws have in any organization, people who are risk-averse, so you need to demonstrate the, the pros over the cons for most things that you, you bring to the table.
0: Um, you know, you mentioned that you were able to have Skype calls with the, uh, the S&C coaches before you moved out there to kind of identify um, what they need, but also form your own impression of the setup. In terms of the athletes themselves, were you able to kind of visit or talk to any of the athletes to find out, you know, maybe what the certain athletes want? Or uh, was that kind of something that you had to discover on the job when you arrived? I mean, it was yeah, nothing beforehand on the job was definitely
1: something I did. And and I I took a good, I actually came out July, end of July. So there was only a month, six weeks left of the season. Um, More like eight weeks in the major league, but not much time left. So that gave me a bit of a buffer to just go, I'm going to take the next two to three months to just learn about everything that's going on in this environment. And I think I had a six month directive basically for my line manager to say by the six month mark, I'd like you to have Clip, philosophy for your department and principles practice uh, were were what i added to that so those first two months were spent talking to staff but equally talking to players and learning a bit about them again showing my vulnerability asking them to educate me asking them some honest questions just one-on-one about areas of development where they think we can be better Um, and you know one of their big things a lot of players were talking about was sort of data. There's a big data-driven approach to baseball, and Astros are historically known for, for that approach, and I think players didn't feel valued in that process. So one of the things you have know, developed this phrase within our group of coaches about closing the loop, and if we're going to collect some data and information, it's, it's imperative that that player gets the feedback at some point and sees the impact of that information on a decision somewhere even if it's a decision to not do anything that's, that's a conscious decision to, to look at the information and inform, inform your practice so whether or not we were doing if we're doing in-house research on some certain activity, sprint activity and it shows value or not we'll show those players that have been involved in that process you know the outcomes and, the, and how it's going to impact the program globally across the organization um, if we're doing a simple norboard you know, hamstring assessment will show the player there and then their scores, and and I think that that's one big thing that players are uh, appreciative of now is is understanding, you know, that this information is largely about them, and that they want to be part of the process. Um, I think that wasn't happening when I that was one of the biggest things that wasn't happening when I started out, and it comes back to that understanding of the data. You know, our coaches we were probably we probably had technology in far quicker than our coaches could understand it. And that's, again, another leadership you know, level of awareness from a leadership perspective that's needed. If you're going to impart something on a group, they need, you need to understand that it's going to be useful. I think I did this with well, I did it with England Sevens. I was doing a lot of HRV, and it would have been wrong for me to just jump dump in 25 RA monitors, ask them to do HRV from tomorrow, and expect to get a good outcome. I actually spent a month with five players case-studying the equipment, The interpretation showed the whole group then the added value to it and why I wanted to introduce it to the whole group. I think we had something around like 90%, 90, 93% adherence over the next three years when we were asking for five samples a week. So that's huge. And I I firmly believe it came from making players part of the process as opposed to making them feel like guinea pigs. Um, So that was one of the big standouts for me in that early stage around – You know, where do you think we can have more impact or what do you not like about our department's work? Uh, Where do you think we can be better?
0: You know, this might be a little bit um, case specific and and team specific, but, you know, hypothetically, if in the future of your career, you had to make another move into a different sport or maybe a different culture as well. Do you think you could kind of take the same approach that you've taken this time and uh, and apply key a- key aspects of it to another situation?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it definitely suits my personality. You know, um, I'm not. As people know me, I'm not typically someone that's going to come in and blow blow something up and and just start it fresh, because you want you don't want this. You don't want the environment. I personally don't think that that anybody wants an environment to be suddenly too alien they want to feel some comfort in order to express themselves properly and i think that that's that's pretty important and it suits my personality but there'll be personalities and leaders out there who are very different and that's that's fine but for me personally i do think it's applicable i guess the question you're asking is could other people apply this approach i think absolutely i think you do have to look at your own personality because you have to be it has to be honest it has to be truthful so conversely if i was going to go in and blow a whistle and shout at people and order them in in line to work in a certain way at a certain time that that, that's that's false it represents me in, in the wrong way and it doesn't reflect what i believe in um so, yeah, but I think that, that if anybody, if, if I was looking to mentor other people into performance related roles or, or management of departments, that take stock of the individuals in that department, give them an opportunity, and, and hear them out and understand um, what they're thinking because everybody wants to have an opinion and an impact and they want to feel part of a team. That's why they got into sport. Um, but I have some key questions that you can ask everybody to, to see kind of assess the knowledge base of the group and, and one of my things that I asked was you know what is what is the current mission of, of the department you know what is our current philosophy you know what are our principles of you know strength and power development what are our principles around speed and it's amazing how when people are asked that it's not pretty hard to articulate unless you're clear about your thought processes and so i feel in a much better position now that if i went back and asked the same bunch of people the same questions that they could articulate that and reflect what we're doing very well now mm-hmm. like, and that would hopefully be a measure of what we're what, what we what we strive to, to change in the last couple of years
0: i really appreciate that um that insight and the the wisdom around that mate thanks for being so open about that one um You know, you've got multiple teams to monitor and manage under under the Astros banner. um, When when you include all the kind of minors and major affiliates, Um, you know, when people aren't in house and it's not spring training, as an example, and everyone's scattered around the place, how do you influence physical performance kind of effectively from you know where you are as mission control as the as the head uh, strength coach coordinator?
1: Yeah, it comes back to. Everyone understanding exactly what they need to do in certain areas of work. So if we rolled out GPS to each affiliate and everybody was collecting different variables, it'd be you know, we wouldn't be striving towards a bigger bigger picture here, which would be we wanna we wanna understand data on the fly for the individual, but we also want to collect information over time to, to update our interpretation of information relative to our sport as as an organization. So firstly, being on the same page. So even if people don't necessarily agree, then they need to be on board. Um, You know, so staff need to be included in decision-making. And I've talked about this previously around building a team or a philosophy. They need to be included in some decision-making, have their voice heard. and, um, And then all being on the same page in person is important so that everyone knows, therefore, why we are taking this certain approach or why we are not taking the certain approach. Um, And that then allows more ideas in the future to come out going forward because people feel more comfortable being able to contribute if you've heard them out. Um, So once you've got your principles, for me, that's the first thing. And I talked about that a lot already. But secondly, the demands on staff because of this remote environment have to be reasonable. So if it's data we're talking about again, Like It must be provided in a way for them that is easy to collect and is interpreted easily. If it's overkill and and I'm saying, I need you to collect five sprints on everybody's speed gates every two weeks and they've only got 20 minutes, 25 minutes to do a session, speed session prior to baseball practice, that's unreasonable. Um, If it's that, we had situations last year where some of our GPS wasn't downloaded and we had technical glitches so we took a different route because it was unreasonable for our coaches to be asked to, to, to collect this data in this way because it was taking them hours. You know, um, If it's expectations in coaching, again, they've got to be realistic. So um, you know, if I'm expecting them to coach five sessions of three players before practice starts, then that means their day is going to run from 9.30 in the morning until 12.30 at night because of the game. That's that's unreasonable. So you know I, secondly it's about making sure that the demands placed on staff are things that they can do consistently well again and again and again. Because otherwise it just it's just gonna fall apart. And I think next is like an AMS is gonna be integrable in this in this environment, or it is integral in terms of all people being able to see all information at the same time. And with the fortunate position we're in with someone like Jose our sports scientist to create an automated system from all our technology means that that information is readily available and that that AMS can be updated tomorrow if we have a new idea about how to make that platform better which sometimes you don't get with more some of the commercial ones so that's pivotal because yeah it's, it's each element of data then that you're collecting and interpreting is going to streamline back into your key principles so you know that, that those three things I think you we know, have firstly it's setting, setting out expectations and all being on the same page about your principles and expectations about schedule management and you know how you're uploading programs and how you're coaching speed etc that, that needs to be all done in person so that everyone can have a chance to ask questions and you can show rationale for, for your reasons for doing things in a certain way, and then then they're all on board. And then um, that those demands you have about the delivery are reasonable, and that you're not undoing all the good hard work you've just done about everyone being on board by asking them to do to do it in a way that's not achievable in the climate you're in. Um, and then when, the, in terms of informing decisions, there's a human element of coaching, of course, but a lot of what we do these days is driven by information because it gives us objectivity that takes emotion and opinion out of things, which I think is really powerful for getting players on board with doing things because it doesn't become so much of a debate. But if you haven't got that information readily available for coaches to use at the drop of a hat, then you're probably limiting your effectiveness. So, you know, for me, that's the way, the, the three key aspects we do. And then from a human side of things, you know, I'm picking up the phone, talking to to guys regularly about their, their, what they're doing, um, problems they've got. Um, obviously, there's some levels of capability in terms of reporting, um, from the standpoint of like load monitoring or even nutrition. There's a big nutrition component to the SNCs work over here in terms of catering and, and getting food in on the road, uh, budget management, um, and then meeting with the guys in person. So. You know, I'm not, we're not only coaching the players, we're coaching our staff. So one of the key things I ask my staff members always is, what's your career objective? Like, where do you want to be? Some people want to be at the major league level. Some people don't aspire to that. They want to be in Olympic sports. Um, and once you understand that about a person, you can start developing them in a certain way to, that they can see value being added back to them for their efforts and so one of the things we do is it was taken from my days in the is that the is have a competency framework that relates to pay for example but looks at like different levels and tiers of practitioner you know like are they an entry level coach or are they an elite coach a master coach and so we have this you know you know approach to objectifying our coaches um from a personal development point of view as well. So when I'm in person working with these guys, I can talk to them and say, Andy, your you know, speed session today was, was excellent, okay? Um, when we looked at your conditioning though, you set it up in this way, which limited your effectiveness because of X, Y, and Z. When we really wanted to work on this because our principle was adaptation over exercise, and you were, ch- you were choosing the exercise before thinking about the adaptation oh, okay, I understand now. And so suddenly we can have this fluid environment where we're we're holding you accountable to certain standards, but the reason is we're trying to make you a better coach. And once they understand that, I feel like it's pretty well received. And obviously you have to deliver the the feedback in a constructive manner. There's no no point with anybody in any environment bringing a problem to the table without an offer of a solution. And so I always try and give within 24-40 hours of me leaving the affiliate giving a, a little feedback report to the coaches to say these are my observations This, these were done extremely well and these are the things I'd like you to work on for my next visit and these are some resources or some ways you can go about impacting that change and then we'll follow up on the phone so it goes wider than just the delivery to, to the players on the ground it goes to the, the, the mentorship of the coaches as
0: well yeah, no, it sounds, it sounds like an incredibly productive environment to be a coach within. I, I try to make it that way. Um, I think that,
1: like, in the moment, potentially in that environment, coaches feel scrutinized. Like, you know, it, it comes down to personality. And I remember myself, you know, early stages back in those EIS days. If I was offered feedback, I'd take it slightly negatively because I wanted it to be excellent. But now looking back, yeah, you know, I, I I cry out for feedback. You know, I actually I'm never I actually in this situation asked for some feedback last year. Um, you know, we have this start stop continue process to, to everything, and I asked certain numbers of well members of, of staff and peers to say, hey, can you give me three pieces of information, things that I you know continue three things that I do really well, um, three things that stop, three things I don't don't necessarily do so well or you need to raise my awareness of because maybe my perception is off and what three things could I start doing and that that was really useful to me because it gave me feedback about things I wasn't necessarily aware of like being in the dugout for games to interact with players because I I saw that time was very valuable for me to get work done with my coaches from a mentorship point of view but certain staffs felt that that was an opportunity for me to spend time with players. Um, just that little bit of feedback raised my awareness of that so I could change that in my, my daily routine or my at least my awareness of making a better decision from a performance impact so yeah it goes wider than just just how you coach a basketball you know
0: yeah. <laughs> and um, you know to take a pretty different turn and go quite technical on something you're of course friends with the other half of Informed Performance uh, Ben Ashworth Yes. who has of course developed the ash test that looks at force application at the shoulder have you you know have you been able to kind of implement or experiment with this test with your guys yeah having I've experimented previously
1: with the sevens um, because I think you know from a perspective of of how the assessment or how the test um, you produce force it's very um, relatable to rugby Um, and especially in the tackle long lever perspective and where we get a lot of dislocations in rugby from a baseball point of view it's a little bit more it's a little bit different because you've got such extreme positions especially in external rotation um, that it's not for me it doesn't seem completely as relevant Um, potentially from a rehab point of view absolutely Um, but we've used other ways to assess internal, external rotation strengths. Um, And we, we have in-house information that helps us drive our decisions about why we do that. Um, And it's just, again, this, this comes back to another, another point is that often it's better to run with the information that you, you have to your, your exposure that you can do quickly and effectively. And one of our principles, like I said to you about coach, You know, what's reasonable? You know, we have certain ways to assess the shoulder that take a minute, you know, and that's massive for the overall impact on our coaches day to day. And it's also, we have it automated. Um, And those things come into the decision making process about value of an assessment because something can be much, something can be as valid and reliable, but it may not be as impactful in the sense of from collection to. Um, action, you know, at the yeah. other end. So, at present, we we don't use it. Um, not to say that we wouldn't in the future, but I personally have had experiences with it effectively, um, but more so in rugby. Um, I like it uh, a lot for the rugby sense, especially with having played myself and created having had shoulder injuries and understanding how I how I got those injuries was in long arm lever positions when I was pretty weak so yeah that's my that's my experiences today of of ben's ash test
0: cool i I, I thought it'd be uh it'd be worth asking you with the uh the relevance of it um you know where are you active on social media is there places people can kind of follow you
1: yeah i'm on i'm on twitter i'm pretty quiet these days um there's a lot of social media (laughs) restrictions sometimes in in different sports but i've just yeah i found myself we actually the social media type of environment that I would have probably shared stuff previously is actually more internalized now. It's another one of another ways to keep coaches engaged is to, we share our work from different departments and different affiliates across a platform. And so that actually has just taken up my time in terms of sharing. I'm sharing with my team now as a matter of priority. So the stuff gets captured, but it doesn't get put out into the the, the real world uh, for everyone else, as, as as much as I used to in rugby, yeah. but I'm um, yeah. yeah, I'm on Twitter as at uh, Howells Dan, um, but yeah, not not as active as I as I have been in the past.
0: No, cool. Well, Dan, thanks uh thanks so much for coming on today. I think I'm definitely gonna come go back through this episode myself and make some notes. You've been you've provided a, an absolute wealth of of insight there, so I, I thank you a lot, mate.
1: No, thank you. I think hopefully, yeah, we we got to where we wanted in terms of we spoke about this a while back and and wanted to anchor it towards a little bit more about departmental leadership and um, systems and structures a little bit more than what we're doing in the gym every day.
0: Yeah. No. And I think, I think we've definitely covered that very well today. So uh, credit you. Thank you. No worries. You're welcome. I'd like to thank Dan for coming on the show today. I really appreciate his level of detail and honesty regarding how he's approached the philosophy for developing and managing the Astros strength and conditioning department and program. Before you guys go, give us a follow on Instagram under Inform Performance or on Twitter at informpod. But most importantly, thank you for listening to another episode of the Informed Performance podcast.